Welcome to Anthropod. I'm Grant Otsky. And I'm Bascom Guffin. Today on our podcast, we'll be talking about the anthropology of race and genetics. Now, one area where the rhetoric of race and biology seems to hold a lot of power is in the world of sports. Yeah. One example is basketball, where people have tried to come up with biological racial explanations for the dominance of African Americans in the sport. But this really ignores the fact that urban Jewish men were the dominant players in pro basketball's early days. And now with the spread of the sport around the world, some countries pushing basketball programs heavily, the, the NBA has become noticeably more diverse in terms of race and nationality over the last two decades. Oh, one sport where people are still heavily looking for biological explanations um, for the dominance of one group of people is in long-distance running. Yeah, the most recent podcast from Radiolab takes a look at these people in Kenya, the Kalenjin, who since the Mexico City Olympics in 1968 have really clearly dominated the field of long-distance running. Uh, there have been researchers trying to find the reasons for this dominance uh, in things like the food they eat, uh, economic systems, the shapes of their bodies, really all kinds of explanations. Uh, a producer for Radiolab has actually come up with a pretty novel explanation. Long-distance running involves pushing through an incredible level of pain, and a section of the Kalenjin put their adolescents through really extremely uh, painful rites of initiation into adulthood, where they're not even allowed to flinch during these initiations. Now, would we want to hear details about these painful rites? Suffice it to say that it culminates in uh, adolescents being circumcised without anesthetics. Okay. And not being allowed to flinch. So, <laughs> right, okay. So, based on this, uh, this producer from Radiolab speculates that maybe 2,000 years of this cultural phenomenon has resulted in sort of a natural selection that has made Kalenjin more able to push through the pain of running than other people. Uh, basically, what he's doing is he's saying that culture can affect biology. Now, our guest today, John Hardigan, would probably say that this is an interesting starting point, but there's a lot more to say about the relationship between culture biology and race. In his essay titled Mexican Genomics and the Roots of Racial Thinking in the August 2013 issue of Cultural Anthropology, John discusses how race isn't something that we just biologically are or simply collectively believe, but something that we learn to do, including in our relations with plants and animals. Now, John deals specifically with human and plant genomics research in Mexico. You may have heard of genetics, which is Broadly speaking, the study of biological inheritance and variation, especially as they're linked to genes. Genomics, on the other hand, is basically a subfield of genetics that deals more specifically with sets of DNA, what their function is, how they're structured, and how they can be changed. John Hardigan is a professor in the Department of Anthropology and director of the Américo Paredes Center for Cultural Studies at the University of Texas, Austin. Thank you for talking with us today, Joe. Um, to start off, it might be interesting to think about public notions of race in the United States. Um, as a proxy, how do your own students, and especially undergrads, tend to come into your classes thinking about race? When I hear my students talk about race, one of the dominant discourses is, is merit. Merit discourse in academia is foundational. Now, you could take that and try to characterize it as a racist discourse because of um, its sort of you know, disparate effects on people, or you can see it as uh, drawing deeply from American culture, the idea of an individual, hardworking, friendly, nice, and you know, triumphing in the end over and against these somewhat nefarious groups who benefit uh, and in unfair Manners. So this, um, the discourse that that yes. ran around affirmative action. Um, exactly, affirmative uh, action. So th these groups are illicitly benefiting when good individuals should be benefiting instead. So and so, in some ways, it pits the individual against a group as well. Absolutely, or, uh, Those, this idea of an individual. Yes, I can either talk about that. I've got two options. I can say, well, that's a racist ideology because of the the way that ends up excluding lots of people of color from the university, or I can say that's a cultural discourse, and by that I mean any cultural discourse is going to let you see some things and not see a lot of other things. 
So what you see with merit is, you know, very legibly a test score, uh, a, a GPA. What you don't see is what's called the wealth effect. All of the ways that um, wealth is correlated with higher test scores, with you know, higher you know, GPAs. When you start bringing those kind of dimensions into view, they can understand it as a cultural discourse, something that they've been socialized into. And I can lead them to see how this matters racially. Whereas if I had just started talking about racism, and they're all very clear that as good individuals, they're not racist, I wouldn't have had that purchase on their attention. So, so far, you know, your students are coming in, they're thinking about race in in this very sort of social way and yes. especially thinking about it in term in terms of things that uh, they see as affecting them directly and you know in terms of uh, groups being uh, privileged or not uh, either by policy or by wealth or the like well see that's but, the trick right there they, they have to see that that whites are a group the white students are socialized to see each other as individuals Right. And everybody else is belonging to groups. Yeah. Right. So they've got to see the group condition of whiteness, these privileges and advantages. And that's what's hard for them initially as cultural subjects, because they're invested in themselves as being individuals. So it's right. like what some people might have heard through the like the idea of the invisible backpack and yes. things like that. What, yeah, what, so what's the, what's that idea of the invisible backpack? It's a set of privileges that accrue to whites, you know, independent of how we think or feel. Uh, so, you know, I have the advantage in this society of not having to wonder if the cop pulled me over because of my race. I had the advantage of being able to walk through a store without being followed by a security guard because of my race. You know, I can, uh, you know, I, I'm never asked to speak for the white people. I'm never asked to speak for those of my race. And uh, there's, you know, just a couple of dozen of these kinds of things that um, are advantages to being white that, again, you know, function independently of whether or not I think a racist thought. Right. Now, if you talk about it as white privilege, they kind of get it. But if you talk about it as these, you know, one, it's the challenge of saying that race is more than disadvantage. And in our prevailing ways of objectifying it, you know, forms of discrimination in particular, are exactly about equating it with disadvantage. So you have to expand that. If somebody's being disadvantaged, Obviously, somebody else is being advantaged. How do you get at that advantage without accusing them of, of harboring a racist ideology? Because as Americans, they think they're, they're good individuals. Right, and they, and they might be yeah. good individuals. And they might well be. Uh, George Lipsitz uses the, uh, the concept of uh, the white spatial imaginary. And, and he, he uses that to objectify all of the kind of investments whites will make in keeping a neighborhood white, uh, the niceness of the lawn, the niceness of the the neighbors that can function without necessarily saying anything about black people or people of color. So it seems like part of what you part of what you have to do is sort of unpack the notion of race for students coming in, for instance. Oh, and, definitely, yeah, and. Um, but it seems like, at least based on your article, that you're starting to get at an idea of race that's actually unpacks it in some fairly radical ways uh, that most even anthropologists haven't necessarily thought of. So yes, you're um, right. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> bingo. <laughs> so um, yeah. So 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 maybe getting into the article um, yeah. itself. Um, you know, it does seem that your own thinking about race was really fundamentally changed by your work in these Mexican genomics labs. Yeah. So um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the fieldwork itself. Uh, yeah. Maybe starting with, you know, how you even chose your site. Sure. And, and let me just preface that by saying um, uh, in my intro race course, I've got a section on genetics like every cultural anthropologist does. And when I started teaching this some 15 years ago, much like every other cultural anthropologist, I 
relied upon a set of arguments that geneticists made about the relative insignificance of race. Uh, Richard Lewinton, in particular, research he did in 1972, showed that there was far greater genetic variation within what we call races than between them. It was only a very modest amount, 5%, 6%, that could be said to vary by what we provisionally call racial groups. Now, I, I've been making that, I've been drawing on that material for a long time. And in the year 2000, uh, a significant event happened, the, the sequencing of the human genome. Initially, that research seemed to bear out Lewinton's basic argument that there's more genetic variation within the races, and hence race is insignificant or you know, doesn't have a biological or genetic basis. Now, that claim generated responses from geneticists who felt that that was not true and that it is inaccurate. And indeed, they were able to do a series of studies that show, well, you know, even if, that, if there is a modest, tiny amount of genetic variation that we can parse by so-called racial groups, it's highly structured. And you know, even a modest amount of genetic difference is important. And what happened nationally, broadly, is these counterclaims got taken up is an argument that the social constructionist view that I'd been preaching in my classroom was wrong. So I realized I had to take the genetics much more seriously. I had to look at both how they were being done, and I was aided in that in a number of cultural anthropologists are studying genomics. And I also had to look at how we cultural anthropologists were making use of it. But that was the impetus for me to you know, find an ethnographic setting where I could look at how genomics of race was being practiced. Because there's a lot of this work being done in the U.S., I quickly decided it would be interesting to work outside of the U.S. <laughs> it was a little <laughs> bit crowded, if you will. Right. So how, um, did, how did Mexico yeah, cool. itself come up? Specifically, um, it was actually a colleague of mine, Martha Menchaca, gave me a news article from Mexico about this uh, Mexican Genome Project, a national undertaking, a national lab that was setting out to sequence the Mexican genome. So I was like, "Wow, tell me more. This is interesting." Um, you know, and and to my ears, that that sounded racial. Huh. And it's partly because uh, in the U.S., Mexican is as much a racial identity as it is a national identity. So it was my own kind of conditioning there. That this question of national genomes, um, are they racial or not? Um, and I went in there pretty convinced I knew the answer and also pretty convinced I was what the data would tell me about it, you know, and and as race scholars in the U.S., that's not unusual. Um, but after spending time in Mexico and you know uh, talking with geneticists there, and you know also just following the public discourses um, about this genome project, and you know doing a lot of the uh, literature reading, I realized, oh wait this is actually a very different notion of race. Uh, you don't have, for instance, the concept of hypodescent in Mexico, which and, is absolutely, and, yeah. And what's hypodescent? Um, it's the belief that one drop of black blood makes you black. It's, it's the belief that uh, a white wo woman can have a black baby, but a black woman can't have a white baby. Okay. It's an assignation of the birth identity to the lower status racial identity. It's, you know, a construct, if you will. In Mexico, as in much of Latin America, there is instead a prevailing belief in mestizaje, mixedness, that, that we're all mixed. Now, there, there are ways that mestizaje makes exclusionary outcomes as hypodescentas in the U.S., but it's a very different relationship to biology. It's a very different notion of how culture and biology interrelate. And that's what I, I had to kind of 
take seriously in a way that I hadn't initially. Some people might have trouble imagining what an anthropologist might actually do or see in a scientific sure. lab or a genomics lab. So can you talk a little bit about sort of the sights and sounds of, of being in such a place? Absolutely, yes. Um, I started off at uh, INMAHEN. It's a National Institute for Genomic Medicine in Mexico City. It's in the south of Mexico City, and it's an exciting place. It's on, on two floors of a big office building, and it, it, it very much has a feel of a startup company. And that was, you walk in, and there's the office cubes, and the labs are on another floor, and um, there's a, a gene bank um, where all the materials are, are stored. And um, I should say that um, as I was getting into this and interested in it, a number of other ethnographers were getting interested in, in it as well, as you can probably imagine. Um, several very good uh, Mexican ethnographers. And um, I quickly realized that this was becoming as crowded as um, my interest in genomics in the U.S. <laughs> so um, I did a bit of a cursory project there. And, and by that, I mean, I, I talked with the geneticists about their sampling strategies, uh, you know, how they went about analyzing the data. But about that time, another colleague suggested to me that I should check out this other research lab, this other genetics, National G Genetics Institute in the state of Guanajuato, which is in the um, geographical center of Mexico. And at first, this seemed off the mark to me. Um, it, it's um, a biodiversity lab, and they're interested, they're, they're doing plant genetics. They're studying corn and uh, 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 beans, avocados, things that are sort of a national patrimony in Mexico. Once I got there, I, I realized there are very striking parallels between how um, uh, genetic identity in relation to the nation was conceptualized in each lab, the ones working on humans and the ones working on plants. And the second thing I realized was I had a very skewed perception of genomics because the vast majority of it is not concerned with humans at all. The vast majority of it is focused on plants and particularly mm -hmm domestic plants. So, so my understanding as a cultural anthropologist of what genetics was, was as badly skewed by thinking it was principally about humans as my understanding of race in Mexico had been skewed by my socialization as a white American. Right. So, so the bulk, so the bulk of your, the bulk of it's, your field work is, was at the, uh, as a, at the plant genomic. Yes. At Longhe Bio, Longhe Bio, uh, National Laboratory of Genomics for Biodiversity right. in, in Guanajuato. And that's actually an ongoing project. And, um, and I, so, I hope to be going back next summer. So what is what is it like to be an ethnographer there? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and some of the listeners might actually be interested be, because working at a lab like this, you're, <clears throat> you're either, you know, how it's phrased, stu studying across or studying up. Studying right? up, yeah, um, yeah, it, yeah. It basically, talking with people who you're, you're trying to talk with people about their area of expertise, which they they're highly trained. Yes. Um, their status is based on this high training, and you come in as basically this ignorant yeah. ethnographer, right? Yes, exactly. Yes. Um, multiple points there you're you're, you're dead on um it's it's studying up uh, they don't have to tolerate me at all um i'm there because they're generous with their uh, time they appreciate my effort to understand what's going on there there's a variety of, of interests involved you could say but it's uh, it's definitely I'm dependent on them in a way that is not typical for the ethnographer historically. Uh, and and the other point too is yes I I come in with a, a meager command of that which I'm attempting to study genetics genomics. Now one thing about that is ethnographers I think generally benefit by being ignorant or stupid about not knowing 
how things work, about not knowing the common sense. That's what we're trying to figure out. So it, it's not a, a, a disabling aspect at all, um, but it is something that requires a lot of patience on the part of the people I'm trying to talk to. Now, the labs themselves, um, fascinating places, and uh, a couple of things jumped out immediately as different uh, between the geneticists studying humans and those studying plants. For those studying humans, um, there's an intense investment in protocols that maintain anonymity of the samples. They, they want to know, you know the bare minimum, you know, gender, age, place of birth. Um, the plant geneticists know everything about their uh, samples. And what's more, they're very actively mixing and matching you know, one breed with another. Um, so they're mixing very, and matching in terms of uh, just let's compares. cross this with that. Oh, you know? so they're so they're actually hybridizing plants. Exactly. Yes, you would never do that with people. You can't do that with people. <laughs> uh, so it's 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 a very different approach. And you know, uh, one thing they they would say to me, oh, well, do you want to see? Well, here we'll go and we'll look at, at these plants. And that's what I ended up spending a lot of my time doing. Um, they they have the labs where they'll do the the DNA analysis, um, you know, very kind of sterile environments. And then they have the um, the fields and the greenhouses, one where they're growing the plants uh, so they can observe them and take samples. Uh, and then two, where they're doing the, the, uh, the crossings of particular varieties or breeds. And that's where things got interesting for me, as unusual as the laboratory might be for ethnographers still. And there is already, I should say, a pretty developed literature of ethnographies of science. This is not, you know, cutting edge in any way. What became very interesting to me was something that they assumed was just routine and mundane. And it was selfing. They self these maize varieties, these rasas, rasas de maize. And I should talk about that for a, a moment, too. Yeah. So, so what um, exactly is selfing? They, they take the pollen from one plant, one variety, and assure that it goes onto the female portion of that plant so that the plant reproduces itself, basically. The key thing is I said, oh, my God, it has a self. I didn't know that. <laughs> and so I immediately think of, of Foucault and care of the self, right? And I said, oh, okay, so what does it mean that this race of corn has a self that is subject to the same kinds of practices of care that Foucault talked about? And so I'm running with this, and it's something that, that they're just, oh, well, this is what we do to maintain that particular rasa, that per particular race but for from a cultural perspective it opens up all of these really interesting aspects of the science right in your essay you talk about both humans and plants like corn having races or rasas yes. Can you speak a little bit more about what that means yes um i got into this project it's uh Blanque bio kind of full-heartedly when i realized that they were talking about rasas de maiz, races of corn. And th there's the same kind of debate with corn as there's with humans. Well, how many races are there? There's substantially more races of corn. Uh, the number varies, as it does with humans. Um, and the answer depends if you're talking uh, to a, a breeder or a geneticist. They, they key in on phenotype, as we do with humans, but also importantly it's a measure of the genetic diversity or variation within the species of of maize of corn now my first assumption as a cultural anthropologist was oh well they've transposed the idea of race from humans in order to talk about corn and they're doing this because this is what humans do we try to naturalize our social categories and and very much of the genomics around race has involved that. We try to find a kind of natural explanation or you know, to explain that these categories are real. 
and then and then maybe sort of vice versa uh, placing human social constructs onto um onto plants or animal behaviors or the like yeah exactly projecting the, them out there right um and uh you know after a few years of um archival work and and this is what initially got me to to spain uh, in order to kind of uh, figure out the genealogy of this use of rasa on on corn i went to um several botanical gardens uh, in madrid in barcelona in particular where they they have the um archives of botanical surveys done in mexico in the 1700s i was quite surprised to find that that was not the trajectory it wasn't a linnaean taxonomical usage that linnaeus being the 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 swedish botanist who invented our you know our um latin classification uh the uh, the latin names for for plants right a- animals right and so it didn't come out of this is what you're saying what i found instead was that rasa has a much older history. When when I do a kind of intellectual history of race in my intro culture course, in my race course, I talk about Linnaeus and Kant and, and these guys who, who talked about uh, these four or five races of, of human beings in the 1700s. Well, it, it turns out that the term rasa, and it's not clear if it's an Arabic term, most likely, or a Latin term, um, percolated up through Italian and Spanish in the 1400s, and its first application was uh, for dogs. And it subsequently moved from talking about dogs to talking about horses um, and to talking about uh, um, bulls and uh, chickens and a, a whole slew of domesticated species. Uh, so when you first heard this word Raza, you assumed that it was sort of human categories, human ideas about difference being apo- imposed onto nature, but what you're yeah. finding, or non-humans, but what yeah. you're finding through your archival research is that actually the term Raza comes first applied to animals, uh, yes. domesticated animals. Yes, and that's key, because we have a couple of ideas about what racial thinking is, at least in the U.S. Racial thinking seeks to naturalize social categories. We seek to naturalize white as Caucasian, for instance. Um, and we also assume that it's about forms of dehumanization. So the kind of um, simian stereotypes around African-Americans exactly de- dehumanize. And you hear it in sports discourse and you hear it and talk about the the uh, president, Barack Obama, right? Right. Um, but I've, I've come to realize that that's a very, fairly narrow segment of racial thinking. Racial thinking, as it emerges historically and as it continues to this day uh, throughout Latin America, where rasa is used far more often on non-humans than it is on people, uh, actually concerns itself with very plastic life forms, domesticated species. These are not natural and they're not fixed types. And that's you know counterintuitive to what we've come to characterize racial thinking. What right. I see racial thinking is a questioning about the nature of species, but particular species, those that are in a companion relation, we could say via Donna Haraway with humans, um, and that have been eminently moldable plastic, right? And and dogs and dog breeding is a really clear uh, clear example, example of this, of right? I mean, you have humongous yes. dogs, you have tiny little dogs, you have all different shapes, sizes, colors. Exactly, perfect example. And that's what Darwin talked about too. And I'll I'll get to him in just a moment. But um, the, the key thing about dogs and why it starts with them, uh, it's an aristocratic practice, this use of rasa, um, as they were trying to think of, of princes of blood, trying to make claims about their lineage and genealogy and its nobility. They worked it out through their hunting dogs and the kind of, of 
of valorous qualities that they both saw in them and could breed into them worked out in a kind of parallel line with their own thoughts about breeding, you know, and breeding's got that two resonances in English, right? This kind of sexual reproduction in a guided way and this sort of accomplished state to have high breeding. So it's almost like dogs as living totems. Yes, yes. But as as forms of sameness or kinds of parallels rather than dehumanization. Now, this is not to say that dehumanization around non-humans doesn't occur, but I think that there's a far larger dynamic of racial thought that's concerned with sameness rather than otherness. And And those forms of sameness get developed through the breeding of these domesticated species. So th- these kind of relations with pets, for instance, might be doing a good bit of racial work that we mm-hmm. aren't even cognizant of because we've got a delimited notion of what racial thinking is. So would it also be sort of placing particular, uh, let's say, personality characteristics on a particular breed of animal? So yeah. For instance, you know, dangerous dogs or yes. that sort of thing. Absolutely. You know, uh, all of the uh, the discourse around pit bulls, for instance, and race is, is very intense, um, you know, from the from Michael Vick and dog fighting to, you know, the kind of stereotyped image of the gangster with his pit bull, you know. But, um, but of course, there are lots of poor whites with with pit bulls as well. But it, it's also something like, you know, where people say, well, you know, it's like dogs and cats. They don't mix. So people don't mix. Right. Oh, OK. So, so even thinking mix. it in terms of like entire species placed Perhaps. against each other. Yeah, okay. exactly. Okay. And, you know, those things, they're not natural, uh, but they are what I would call biosocial. You know, the key thing about breeds is that they're biosocial entities or forms. They aren't natural objects. Okay. So just to sort of recap, um, like we started talking about uh, how race is uh, seen as a social construction by many anthropologists, but there's also a strong discourse as race is biologically based, right? And these two have been in opposition. And then we have also this idea that race is about humans and differences between human groups and not about animals. Like where animals are different, it's about humans imposing uh, categories of difference. And this category of biosocial sort of lets you think in between these categories of biological and cultural or biological and social and between human and, and animal. Yes. I want to pick up on something that uh, Grant just just said, Um, the kind of assumption that these discourses are actually about people. You get that a lot at this moment. Um, The you know, there's a lot of of interest and concern in alien species, alien species of plants versus native species of plants. And there's a kind of strong cultural anthropological critique that what this is, is a sort of ideological displacement. White Americans are worried about Mexicans, aliens, illegals, and so they kind of displace that into talk about plants. So how would you how would you define biosocial? So biosocial, that does a couple of things. Uh, first, it takes takes cognizance of the historical strength of anthropology as a discipline. We've consistently tried to think biology and culture as interrelated. Boaz's foundational work on the plasticity of the human form is exactly um, uh, an outgrowth of that or you know, um, emblem of that. But we've moved away from that in racial analysis because of the intensity of the claims that there's a biological basis to race, a kind of genetic determinism. Um, I've got a couple of thoughts on that, and I'll just flag in passing. One, you know, I don't think those ideas are as dominant as we tend to believe in anthropology, uh, getting back to my students at least. Nobody learns race by hearing, oh, it's genetic, right? Nobody learns race for the first time by hearing a genetic study that says African Americans have this concentration of that allele. We learn it as culture. We learn it as categories for sorting out people. Now, we've privileged our critiques of genetics for a couple of reasons, some very good, but I think also because it's an easy target. Um, 
also because it plays into, you know, there's a prevailing critique in anthropology that race is a modern idea. It arises out of enlightenment science. Uh, and if we could just disabuse people of this idea, it, it would go away. And and that's where you get the idea, the the argument, the social constructionist argument, race doesn't exist, race is a myth. Um, all of that is to steer attention away from the biological, from the genetic. And coming out of uh, an understanding, uh, understandably, un, you know, sort of discomfort with some of the the, the biological uh, discourse that has been absolutely that is that has been mobilized to to basically oppress or kill yes. or the like. Right? Yes, From... absolutely. There are, are fundamentally sound reasons for doing that. Um, but at this particular moment, when we see how geneticists have responded to those claims. Um, when we see, when I see in my kind of ethnographic work in the U.S., the relative um, uh, irrelevance of genetics to most of the ways people formulate racial discourses, particularly around merit, um, that, then I think it's time to expand our repertoire. I'm not dismissing the importance of challenging biological and genetic claims, but I, but what has been an outgrowth of my ethnographic experience in the labs, talking with geneticists. It's seeing the problem that we create when we make an assertion about social construction. Uh, one, because it entirely dismisses what they're doing, the biological and genetic work. And two, it says, we're the only ones who really know what's going on here because we study the social. So it, it makes for more problems in multiple registers, then I think it solves. Um, and so I turn to the biosocial uh, and, you know, for a variety of reasons here as well. One, we have biosociality as has been formulated by Paul Rabinow. It's kind of a broad, hot, widely applicable concept. Um, by using biosocial with race, it puts race in dialogue with those kinds of theoretical discussions. And I think it helps break down some of the intellectual segregation that happens around race and the analysis of race. And so the, yeah, the, the biosocial being yeah. um, sort of, I mean, at, at sort of the simplest, the simplest uh, sort of explanation being yeah. the interaction of the biological and the social and, and how they, how they act upon each other and sort of create a recursive. Uh, exactly. So uh, African-Americans have an uh, uh, average lifespan that, that's about seven years shorter than whites. Right. R really shocking. Uh, part of that is you know, much higher rates of heart disease among African-Americans. Um, why is that? Uh, especially when you know, a, a geneticist would say, well, there's a genetic explanation. But the striking thing is that you don't see those higher rates of heart disease in Africans, in Africa, or in the Caribbean. It's in the U.S. So there's something about the social context here that's shaping that biology. And arguably, it's the experience of racism and discrimination that creates a lot of stress. You've got to be able to see the biological dimensions of those social dynamics. But you, you've got you don't to. want to stop at just saying it's, it, it's social in the sense that that anthropologists have made this argument that it's not real and that it doesn't exist. So anthropologists, at least in the last decades or so, yeah. have, have declared race as a myth. Yes. Um, and you're so, saying the biosocial actually will treat it differently. Because I'm saying it's a biosocial fact. Right. In contrast to saying it's a social construction. Right. The view that it, it's a myth, you know, one that's disturbing because cultural anthropologists should take myths very seriously. I mean, that's kind of our, our forte and strength is explaining these. But with race, we use it as something to dismiss. Um, and saying race is a biosocial fact is making an empirical claim of a certain order of, of complexity, one that's not easily reduced in a reductionist sense. When I say biosocial, I'm saying you've got to, to mobilize two or three explanatory frames simultaneously. 
geneticists tend to go for reductionist explanation. We want to put their explanatory frame in dialogue with a biological one, which is not the same as genetics. That's about phenotype and the interaction environment. And then additionally, this cultural or social register of explanation. So we we spoke a little bit earlier about the power relations between uh, the scientists and yourself as being yes. sort of sideways or yes. you looking up. And yes. if we're taking this biosocial approach, then it also seems to imply mm -hmm. sort of a different kind of cooperation or collaboration between an ethnographer and a scientist. So would yes. you speak about that? Yeah, ideally in... in in this kind of ethnographic context, um, they're going to at some point ask me, well, what's going on on culturally here? What's going on culturally, certainly in the lab, but also, um, you know, how do we generate, how are these generated? Uh, you need an archaeologist to uh, talk about that. Um, the striking thing from the archaeological record is it seems that these rasas were exactly bred to be emblems for particular groups, tribes, social groups, however you want to characterize them. And in a sense, they might have been working totemically or racially long before the Spanish arrived. How did these things circulate? How, how do they work in a kind of interplay with everyday everyday life, uh, balancing out the the symbolic with the nutritional? There's only so far you can go with genetics to answer those questions. Um, but you know, that's where a kind of expertise from a cultural anthropologist can you know, percolate in without just being an annoyance. This guy who's asking all these crazy questions of why do we do this and why do we do that <laughs> well I, I i think it's interesting like i was just looking back at the title the roots of racial thinking and it sounds like the roots of racial thinking are in like significant part in the plants and animals around us like we might i what i think i hear you saying is that uh, the way that we think about our dogs, for instance, or our cats, or about corn, uh, inform the way that we think of each other. Right. Yeah, that that what whatever racial thinking is, and that's what I'm I'm trying to kind of characterize. It's it's far broader than we've anticipated, and it, it's not simply the, the social projection onto the uh, natural world. It's a, a product of these companion species relationships if you will. Um, but the thing about roots is important here. And, and this gets into the, the ongoing ethnographic work I'm doing in Spain. And let me just say briefly that after I couldn't find Rasa in the archives of these botanical gardens, I started studying them ethnographically. One, because I recognized they were doing pretty similar forms of plant genomics as those researchers in Mexico were doing. But secondly, I realized you know, this much bigger question about how we think with plants or how plants kind of think through us. So you take something like horticultural hermeneutic, roots, fruits, seed. And I get these three, you know, botanical figures, if you will, uh, from the Bible. This is uh, just those, those metaphors are pervasive in the Bible, and, and hence they permeate Western thought. Uh, our semen comes from the Greek for seed. We, we figured out how roots, seeds, and fruit functioned, and then we used them to make sense of people. Culture, culture comes from cultivation. Cultivation is something we did with and to plants long before we ever thought of using it to make sense of people. Roots is the way we talk about our computer directories, branching operations, seed programs. It's, it's, it's absolutely pervasive still. So race is part of, I think, this larger horticultural hermeneutic. There's some ways that stands out real legibly when we talk about a people and their roots or people as not having roots. 
but it's also there in our ideas using seed, the seed of an idea, seed money, seedings in the NBA or the uh, NCAA, yes, NCAA, right, the basketball, right? March Madness. March March Madness, seedings. Um, These things are more than, than metaphors. These are ways that plants fundamentally give us the, the grammar of our thought. We apply some of that thought to thinking about collectives, groups, of people. But it's how we think about the human much more broadly. Here's where I, I'm going with this. W.B. Du Bois' most famous quote, the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. You've probably seen that quote multiple times. My sense is that in the 21st century, that problematic line is between the human and the non-human. My challenge is to think how we go from the color line to this line, the human and the non-human, and connect race all along the way. So this human and non-human, it's what Bruno Latour works on, the agency of um, uh, of, of tools, machines, these, you know, um, inanimate animate objects, if you will. But the non-human, human also importantly includes these domestic species. When we talk about race as a a modern invention, we miss this much deeper history of domestication, arguably the emergence of modern culture, contemporary culture over the last nine, 10,000 years that's done in this very active series of companion species relationships. Race is part of that. It sounds almost like um, humans have learned to become human along with domesticated species, like plants taught us how to be human in an important way. Our our very idea of cultivation comes from a relationship that we establish vis-a-vis plants. We talk about culture now as if it's a unique human possession. Of course, it's not. The number of non-human primates have cultural behaviors and activities. That's where this line between the human and the non-human is central to the 21st century. That involves race. It, it follows from our concerns with the color line. But in order for us to recognize that, we have to get out of thinking that it's strictly about people and recognize that it's also about you know, plants and animals. So a lot of what you're saying is... Uh, if you turn it back on the anthropology, it means that anthropologists have to fundamentally change how they think about race and also nature and culture and humans and plants and uh, the relationships between species. And um, this is, at least in part, the focus of this edited book on the anthropology of race that's coming out soon? Yes, it's out now. It's out oh, now. No. This project, uh, I'm so excited to have been a part of it at all. First off, it's um, a seminar at the School of Advanced Research in, uh, in Santa Fe. And it's just a fantastic place. And it's um, a crucible for anthropology. Uh, you know, this is where we get the uh, writing culture book from. One of my mentors, Jim Clifford, was involved in that. Um, right. And um, what uh, I was able to do was um, have a seminar that uh, included biological anthropologists, anthropologists who do genetics with cultural anthropologists. And our, our starting point was, was how do we say something other than race is socially constructed? Because there are manifold ways that that ha- has lost traction with a larger public out there. Uh, more importantly, that stance really kind of precludes, it's predicated on not attending to the biological or the genetic. So we spend a week, each of us talking about our respective approaches. Uh, And as we did that, we also were thinking kind of collectively, how do we say something about this particular approach? 
Now, on one hand, we were able to tap into this long running um, strand of thought of, of biocultural analysis in anthropology. You know, something you could arguably trace back to Boaz. Uh, it goes kind of in and out of favor, in and out of attention, uh, and it's used on more than than race. We spent a week talking like this, um, again, about our, our respective projects and trying to think collectively. On the last day of our seminar, we he said, well, why don't we get out the AAA statement on on race and see, you know, kind of how we would, you know, talk back to it or update it. And we were rather surprised in reading it. It it seemed rather dated. Um, and and when was this statement put out? 1998. Okay. So, you know, it is dated. <laughs> um, there's a few things about it. It's written from that perspective I mentioned at the beginning of the interview that Richard Lewinton's work has proved that there's no genetic basis to race. Uh, and so it, we know it's a myth. We know it's only ideology. We know it's just about power. Well, you know, what's not in there was the other thing that jumped out at us. There was nothing in there about studying racial health disparities, for instance. And that is arguably one of the most kind of poignant problems today. There was nothing in there about the plasticity of the human. There was very little about how a, an ethnographer uh, would encounter uh, racial thinking in the field, uh, ambiguous or virulent, you know, just any, any kind of sense of how you turn it into data and analyze it. It was very much, you know, explaining race away. It's not a template to tell a researcher, here's what you've got to anticipate or think about as you go into the field. Now, the other thing we did was then we called up the uh, American Sociological Association's Statement on Race, which is an interesting historical document written a couple of years later, partly in response to the AAA, um, and making an argument instead that we do have to produce data about race. We do have to study it. In the AAA statement, race is in quotes. In the ASA statement, race is this empirical object that we have to make sense of. We liked that about the sociological statement on race, uh, but we noticed that there were a number of things missing there as well, the exact kind of things that makes cultural anthropology in particular very powerful. This argument that there is a biological and a cultural interplay, a dynamism to race. The argument that you have to understand this broad category race through specific settings and circumstances. The understanding that the markets that the sociologists refer to are not these um, uh, uh, independent entities out there in space. So, so what are these yeah. markets that they were mentioning? Well, so they'll talk about discriminatory practices in hiring and housing and health. Um, and these things are, you know, in some sense, market driven or, you know, shaped by that. Okay. They have a sort of economist view of markets, um, whereas anthropologists see them as, you know, cultural di dynamics that that play out in particular ways. They're contoured by region, by nation, by place. Um, you know, all that sort of standard anthropological stuff. Right. So we didn't like, we, we weren't satisfied with what the sociologists were saying, but we were struck by the difference between their statement and the AAA statement. So we end up with, well, what do we do? We obviously can't rewrite that statement. Um, we can certainly suggest that it needs to be done. Um, and that'll be a collective um, undertaking of the AAA. I mean, they had a committee that put together that last one. I suspect that there'll be a, a committee someday soon to update that one or to write a new one. But we could go through and enlist, you know, our ideal is that um, this statement is a, a template for anthropologists who want to study race. And it gives them some guidance in how to do that. 
So, you know, our basic uh, research recommendations are things like, you know, think bioculturally. Uh, you know, do concentrate on health disparities, um, you know, but also think cross-culturally. So my contribution to that volume was was exactly <clears throat> to look at race in the U.S. and look at race in, in Mexico and not assume that race is this global, universal, um, you know, force or entity. We might see race in all kinds of places, but it doesn't operate by the same fundamental logics as we see as differentiate hypo descent and mestizaje for instance um right so so race is yeah. not not this fixed concept not this fixed myth yes um, yeah as as actually this sort of living um and also in 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 the way you've been using the other terms it's this sort of plastic idea mm-hmm. exactly it's 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 plastic <laughs> in the sense that Species can be very plastic, as domestication shows, uh, but also, importantly, in, in a kind of recursive interplay. The ways race matters at a market level will affect the ways race matters at the neighborhood level, will affect the, race, the ways race matters phenotypically, in, in the ways a, a, a person's body registers the impacts of racism or differential access uh, to good food, good schooling, good jobs, all of that. Um, It's, it's, it, it, so, so we would move away from race is myth, race doesn't exist to saying race is a biosocial fact and here's how you objectify it, here's how you produce data on it, and here's how you analyze it. What I, I think it's fundamental in challenging racial thinking as we encounter it in the U.S. today is a cultural per- perspective. Rather than taking race as this kind of independent reality and dynamic racism, what we do best as anthropologists is explain culture to people to show each other how we are enculturated. And the things we're enculturated to might signify race, sometimes, like individual and group, but that's also very important to gender dynamics. It's very important to how we think about class. When you show it via culture, then that imbrication kind of makes sense. The the mutually reinforcing aspects of individual and group playing out with race, class, and gender in a way that the intuition that you get from race isn't real. Um, it's harder, I think, to sustain over the long haul. Right. It's 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 just sort of a. <laughs> okay, it's a, now a what? glimpse. You go, <laughs> yes. Now what? Right. Right. One of the striking realizations for me in the Mexican genomic situation is the way they were talking about the Mexican genome. It's not floating out there in space or nature. It's the product of colonial history. It's the product of the differential rates at which mestizaje or admixture occurred in different parts of Mexico in relationship to the indigenous groups, what the local Spanish practices were. They come up with a genome that's a cultural artifact. Um, and, you know, that's a very powerful view. You know, the, uh, the notion of, of, of population in genetics frequently assumes random mating. Well, humans don't mate randomly at all. Uh, we, we mate culturally. And, you know, so that shapes our genome. It shapes multiple genomes. It shapes, you know, genes into particular structures in interactions with in environment. Um, and, and I think that that view, more than anything, can undermine the... I, the target that social construction sets for itself, genetics and its claims about um, race. If you can show that what genetics is talking about, this genome, is actually to some extent a cultural artifact, then you show that race is dynamic, it's plastic, it's not natural, it's not fixed. All of those things that we're trying to, to disabuse people of, and we get to do it on a very interesting terrain the genome 
So John yeah. Hardigan, yeah. thanks so much for being with us. Thank you both. Oh, yeah. thank you for giving us your time to yeah. okay. uh, talk with Great. you about your work. You've been listening to Anthropod, the podcast of the Society for Cultural Anthropology. You can find John Hardigan's article, Mexican Genomics and the Roots of Racial Thinking, in the August 2013 issue of Cultural Anthropology. His edited volume, out now from SAR Press, is titled Anthropology of Race, Genes, Biology, and Culture. And if you're in Chicago for the American Anthropological Association meetings this November, you can catch his panel, Plant Publics, Cultivating Sociality Across Species Boundaries, on Friday the 22nd at 1.45. We'll also be at the AAA meetings, and you might be able to find us in the halls. We'll be the ones with microphones asking a lot of questions. In the meantime, you can subscribe to Anthropod via iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And you can also find us at coolanth.org. That's C-U-L-A-N-T-H dot org. There on the website, you can find out more about John Hardigan and all our previous interviewees, as well as the journal, Cultural Anthropology. You can also find the Society for Cultural Anthropology on Facebook and Twitter at Colanth. I'm Bascom. And I'm Grant. Thanks for listening. <laughs>